Sometimes the most memorable stories we carry with us from military service were just the product of the branch of service we were in or the deployment we were on and the crazy stuff that happens when people with a mission and a common cause live in close quarters. The Garrison Project Podcast tells those stories, your stories, and builds connections across generations of veterans. The Garrison Project, veterans connecting with veterans through the power of storytelling. And now your host, Dan Ettinger, co-founder of the Garrison Project. All right, all right, everybody. I appreciate uh, everybody joining in again for another episode of the Garrison Project Podcast. This is Dan Ettinger. Episode number four. Pretty exciting. We are uh, we are moving along. Proud to say that we are up to 40 downloads. That's an average of 13 point whatever. Uh, that's not bad at all. Seems like uh, got a little bit of interest. And hopefully with some of the, the topics we'll cover here tonight and getting a little bit of momentum here over the next few days with some interviews, we can continue building the, uh, building the community. So again, episode number four, the Garrison, <clears throat> the Garrison Project podcast, Dan Edinger. Today we do not have a guest interview, but I have some good topics to cover, some feedback stuff some uh, some discussion about what sort of feedback I'd like to continue getting. Update on the website, which isn't too dramatic, just uh, kind of is what it is, should go live here soon, we'll cover that. Uh, have a story, another story for myself, some discussion topics around uh, storytelling, and then uh, a fair amount of discussion about the direction of the the, the Garrison Project. And then finally, we'll wrap up with uh, me asking for for some support for what we do next year with the Garrison Project. So I'll really be interested in hearing what you all are thinking as we get through some of that. Let us start with some of the feedback. Continue to get some great feedback. Uh, a lot of what's on my mind right now with the feedback of the first few podcasts was based on a conversation uh, that my son and I had on Sunday. I think it was Saturday or Sunday morning. And uh, he's uh, he just got out of the Marine Corps, so uh, a veteran himself. He'll be on the uh, on the podcast. Also coming up, by the way, uh, scheduled interview with my son-in-law, another veteran. Son was in the Marine Corps. Son-in-law was in the Navy. He was a, the son-in-law was a submariner. So we'll uh, we'll we'll talk about some uh, fun submarine stories there. But the what's on my mind right now about feedback is what uh, my son and I were talking about. And really, it's about the direction of what somebody can do as we build this community. And that was also uh, part of a, a discussion today that I had with my business partner here in the Garrison Project about the next stages. And that's going to be really the most of the discussion of the second half of the podcast is I've talked about what we're doing here and what we're doing there and what will come and all this sort of a thing. But I want to kind of put some meat in the bones on that with this discussion and, uh, and see what people are thinking. So to, to set the stage there, it's about, uh, let's say that we build a community here of 5,000 or 10,000 veterans and family members and all that, or 25,000. What can that group of people do? What can that group of people do to help the, that group to, to support itself? And, and what sort of important stuff can we do going forward? I've got a vision of it but I don't really want this to be about what my vision is. I want to empower and enable that group that we build 
to, to do some important things. Again, I have a couple of goals out of all of this that we'll talk about, but after all that is all said and done, it's about what does the community need? What does the, the veteran community need to work on? And if you put 10,000 or 15,000 or 25,000 people together, there's not going to be a whole lot that, that can't be done. And that's the frame of mind that I have in, in this, in the, in this garrison, in the garrison project. And there's some unbelievably cool pieces and parts that, uh, that we're working hard on bringing to life. And I'll be asking for, for help to make all that stuff happen, but, uh, really some cool and unique things that I think we can do here. So that's just to, uh, to set the stage email address. So I gave out my email address a couple of times over the past few podcasts. I've now asked for feedback umpteen million times. I want you to send that feedback, dan at thegarrisonproject.com. What kind of stuff do I want to hear from the uh, from the team about here? Important, important news, uh, resources, questions, stuff that I've now painted the picture, what this community is, what the Garrison Project is, is the community of veterans that we build. Once I turn that uh, the website on, and turn on the social media, we'll be actually be able to see the group grow. And the what I want to start hearing from the team is questions. Hey, the Garrison Project, I need help in this area. Can somebody help me? And then between myself reaching out directly to resources and the group building off of all of our collective resources, we meet the needs of the of the people in our community. Dan at the garrison project.com. No filter. Send me what, what you want to send. Uh, I'm sure I'll get some interesting, uh, feedback about <laughs> the, uh, what we're doing here on the podcast and, uh, the styling and the number of times they say, um, although again, last podcast I went through and I think I got all of them out 2030, some number like that. What I'd like to do again, just hear, hear from, the, the small beginning of a community as we have, ask, ask what we need. I told you before that I'm in the job market right now, much to my chagrin. And uh, I would love to hear about resources that people who listen to this may have out there. I spent the, the time a couple of years from the time of a couple of years before I retired until now, really collecting resources and all that stuff. But when it comes to brass tacks and it's time to actually go out and find a job, it's, still not all that easy. You, you have to do a lot of work and uh, whatever we can do to help speed that along is all the better for the community, right? Dan at the garrison project.com. If you need something, if you need some questions answered, if you have some resources to share and would like to put them out of the podcast, if you'd like to appear on the podcast, I can absolutely dial people in and have a discussion. That's really what I like, by the way. I am certain everyone's going to get sick of hearing my voice over time here. But if you have some resources to provide, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and on the website itself, it'll have a place where you can put in some for some content to do an interview, uh, do an interview and do the uh, do a uh, podcast interview here if you have a great story to tell, which I hope you do. Uh, I hope to be hearing more of other people's stories other than my own. Once again, Dan at the garrison project.com. 
eventually we'll come up with a, an info email address. But starting humbly here, uh, I have a, I'm the one paying for the for the Zoho email address. Dan at the garrison project.com. Already sort of mentioned, so I'll just go quickly across uh, through this. Yeah, the website mentioned now a couple of times should go live here in the next couple of days. I was waiting to put enough content together to actually turn it live and have it make sense there. So two of the three modes of communication have enough where I can turn it on. And there's not much to the website itself. It's all about the content and wh where we go and the additional stuff we add to the, to the website down the road. Part of the vision we'll talk about here. I think there's enough there now, enough content to at least turn it on and, and make it work. If you remember the modes of communication, this podcast, that's one written stories, kind of in a blog format. That's two and three is the, the thing I'll be talking more about today. Finally, the correspondent model, that second version, you'll be able to just put those stories right in there. If you just want to write your own story, uh, you won't, even though the information that you put in will be first name, last name, email address, and all that kind of stuff. The only thing I'm going to put on the website is uh, like a first name, uh, last initial, and the service. So don't worry about uh, privacy concerns and all that sort of thing. There won't be any connection between what you put in and what I put up on the site. I'll I'll just cut and paste stuff out of the the input and put your first name and last initial in there. So lots of good stuff there uh, put out about where we stand with the Garrison Project and where we're going. Let's do a story. And because I don't have a uh, an interview for today, I thought I would share a another hopefully interesting story uh, from my time in the Navy Submarine Force. The I shared last time when I gave kind of an overview of my career that my first deployment, maybe I didn't share this, who knows? I'll share it anyway again. Forgive me if I repeat. My, my first deployment was out of Norfolk on the, the James K. Polk, which was SSN 645. It was a converted SSBN, SSBNs being the, uh, the missile boats, the ones that shoot missiles out of the top of it. This one was converted. It was about 32 or 33 years old when I got there. So I, I got to that ship, and like a week later, we went underway for my first submarine underway. It was only the second submarine I'd ever stepped on board and the, uh, the first one I'd ever gotten underway on, and it was to, to head overseas on a six-month deployment. And my wife and the kids went with me down to Norfolk to kind of drop me off. I still have the pictures of where I'm all. I, for some unknown reason, I grew this ridiculous bushy mustache, but I have these pictures of me all uh, with my eyes all red and stuff because I was crying, having to say goodbye to everybody, and that I'd be back in six months relatively dramatic your your first deployment when you go overseas but anyway so i get on board the uh the james k polk and we go over to the mediterranean and first submarine underway and it was fantastic the story about stopping in the middle of atlantic of the atlantic ocean because of some maintenance issues and just seeing stars from horizon to horizon and all this kind of thing just really really unbelievable stuff but get into the uh in the mediterranean and we pretty much stopped everywhere it was much like the uh the love boat where we went to Gibraltar, Portugal, uh, Lisbon, Portugal, uh, Toulon, France, which I'm going to talk about here in a second, uh, Road to Spain, Rhodes, Greece. Feels like I'm missing one in there somewhere. I might be, but anyway. 
So saw a bunch of places and the, uh, we pull into maybe it was a couple months in cause it definitely wasn't the first or, or second place that we pulled into, but we pull into Toulon, France. There's a, the submarine maneuvering watch, which is when you're pulling into port, you surface the ship and you rig the ship for surface operations. And being on a submarine is, is very unique because if you picture it, it'll immediately jump out at you when I say it. The one disadvantage for a submarine on the surface is it doesn't have a keel. That's a problem because if you have rolling seas and all that kind of stuff, the ship just kind of wallows. But anyway, so you, you rig up the ship for surface operations, which is a little bit of an ordeal and all that kind of stuff. And you, you man this maneuvering watch, which is pretty much everybody. Everybody's up. Everybody's on station because it's ostensibly the most dangerous part of a submarine's underway is when you're going in and out of port. It's not maneuver, not maneuverable. Uh, submarine sailors drive underwater, that, that kind of stuff. So we pull into to Toulon, France, and I forget if I had watch. When you, when you pull in, by watch I mean when you pull in, you have people who stay on board and watch the ship uh, to, uh, you know, do all the, do all the stuff and be in charge of the ship and all that. But usually about half to two thirds of the ship, as long as there's nothing going on, officially speaking, you can go on what's called Liberty. So you can go out into town, go do your thing, see the sights, have a good time and all that kind of stuff. Like I said, about two thirds of the ship, can generally leave at any one particular time, and especially on weekends. So you pull into a foreign port, maybe there's a day or two of some official stuff. If it's a Liberty port, sometimes you actually pull in during a deployment for no other reason other than to get some Liberty and get some rest and relaxation, some R and R. And I cannot remember. It feels like this uh, pull into to Toulon, France was something like that because we only had a couple of meetings. I remember going to a uh, Toulon has uh, French submarines there. And so the uh, wardroom, the skipper, and some of the officers from the wardroom, and I was part of the kind of the entourage. We go up to have some reception by the by the French submariners, and we sit around, and the skipper drinks tea or something like that with the uh, with the French submarine guys, and uh, meet and talk and all, all that kind of good stuff. Good time. But uh, so it was a main as mainly Liberty Port as I remember it because I spent a heck of a lot of time off the ship. And one of the things I absolutely learned to love when I was going to Auburn was playing ultimate Frisbee. It's the only thing, the only sport that I can actually do well, right? I can, and I can't do, uh, if you watch people play ultimate Frisbee on TV, you see them do like uh, four, uh, throw underhand, throw kind of uh, open, do like kind of, you have the traditional Frisbee throw, which is wrap your hand around your body and zing it out there. Some people can throw it open, you know, kind of an open throw or, they call it a hammer where they throw it over, you throw it over your head. And uh, so all these different things. I can't do any of that. But if I throw a Frisbee regularly in a regular fashion, kind of a standard throw, I can do it pretty good. And no idea why I'm, I have any talent at this. And I'm not like world, world-class world talent, but I can throw a Frisbee pretty good. And I took a Frisbee with us on, on that deployment. And at, uh, at Auburn, we'd have like, I think there's about 170 or so active duty guys and gals, uh, ROTC, excuse me, ROTC with uh, some active duty. There's maybe 30 or so active duty guys and gals there. And then another 140 or 130 ROTC uh, people in the Navy unit. So that whole group would go out on Thursday morning PT and break up into fields and play ultimate Frisbee, like, you know, 15 on 15 ultimate Frisbee all over the, the parade deck. 
there at Auburn. So anyway, I loved, uh, learned to love to play ultimate Frisbee. I took a Frisbee with us over to, over to the Mediterranean in my first deployment. The, we, so I take it with me. We go out on Liberty one day, uh, myself and another one of the junior officers on board. And by that, I mean, you, uh, you generally call first tour, uh, officers on a submarine junior officer. So that's the, uh, Oh one, two and three. So, um, and Oh threes can come back as department heads and there'll be an Oh three when they get back as department heads. But in your first tour, you'll either be a, an ensign, a Lieutenant junior grade or a Lieutenant and you make Lieutenant right before you go, before you transfer to shore duty. So myself and one of the other junior officers on the ship go off and we're going to walking around uh, Toulon and check it out. You leave the uh, the area where we where we were pulled in, wherever the piers were that we were pulled in, and one of the first things we saw was the Smash Sandwich Shop, which I really would like to, uh, if I had the time and and focus, I would love to make a Smash Sandwich Shop fair uh, um, vending stand, right? All the ridiculous stuff you can get at state fairs and stuff. I want to make Smash Sandwiches and. Uh, I think a smash sandwich is pretty close to a primanti, if anything, where it's uh, like uh, a couple hamburger patties sliced up. Not that that's like a primanti, but you take a couple hamburger patties, slice them up, and you take some fries, and you take whatever else, you throw it all in that thing, and you make a gigantic panini out of it. And having been at sea now in the Mediterranean for a couple of months, which, by the way, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. It was during the summer, which is when the, the Mediterranean is is the best. So we... So we get a smash sandwich, then off we go. We go tearing off, and one of the one of the, the the things to see in Toulon is called the gut. And I think that probably most navy towns and most military towns have something similar to it, where it's the uh, how shall we say the the seedy side of sound side of town or the the red light district. And I was very well behaved when I was deployed, by the way. But you have to walk through the gut to kind of check it out, right? And so this, uh, this fellow and I, we go walking up through the gut just to kind of see the sights and it was creepy as I'll get out. <clears throat> Pardon me for taking a drink of water there. It was uh, creepy as I'll get out. Cause you walk through this thing. Oh, and I also remember, uh, we walked into a, uh, a shop that sold items of ill repute and, uh, and saw some horrible, horrible literature there, uh, that, uh, that they sold in that area, which I, I shall spare you the details of, but it was horrifying. So anyway, we go uh, walking up through the gut and the creepy part about it was each one of the bars had uh, ladies out front and they would come over and, you know, surprise, surprise, we look like Americans, right? And we smell like submariners because submariners stink. Uh, you get the smell of amine uh, on you and you just smell bad. So so these uh, ladies would come over and like, you know, kind of grab your arms, oh, come on in and whatever. I can't remember if they were speaking in French. You would think so, or at least with an accent, but I cannot remember the, the, the words they said or whatever. They come over there and kind of grab, grab your arms and all this kind of stuff and try to drag you in like, no, no, all good. hundred percent good. Right. So this uh, guy and I, we make it through the gut and see all the, the horrifying sights and all that kind of stuff. And we go to, and I have no idea what we were actually aiming to do here, but we walk all the way through town, get through the gut, get on the other side of town. And we end up in this park in Toulon, France. And it's kind of a cool thing. You can look off in the distance. I think it was like uh, mountains or something like that out there, uh, but it's just gorgeous. And it's the summer. So I bust out the Frisbee and we're like throwing the Frisbee around. 
these these old ladies walk up to us and are speaking in French. Obviously, can't speak any English because not even trying. They're like mesmerized by the frisbee, and I can't imagine that the frisbee is something that has not made it to France. But these uh, ladies were interested in the frisbee and wanted to kind of mess around with it. But we're throwing the we're throwing the frisbee back and forth. You know, it's like almost at the edge of our my consciousness at the time is we were standing next to a very large, like a wall, a stone wall. We're throwing the frisbee back and forth and back and forth, and the the fellow I was with takes this frisbee and chunks it, and it lands up on top of this wall, and the wall is like maybe twenty feet, twenty foot tall wall. Like there was no way I was getting up on top of this wall, right? I'm like, hey, that's you know, it's my frisbee, and I brought it all the way halfway around the world. By God, we're going to go see if we can get this thing back. We walk around, start walking around the perimeter of this wall, and it's there's a corner, you know, it's like a a right angled corner, and we make it around that. And we're just kind of following this wall, seeing where we can get up and, and walk along it. And we make it all the way over to uh, along this next wall that we were on. There was an entryway, but there were these huge spikes and whatnot sticking out, and it was. Uh, ridiculous looking because it literally literally spikes like a foot or two long pointing all different directions lord knows what i was thinking at the time but i decide i'm going to make it through these things because i want to get my frisbee back right and i wiggle my way in amongst these things and now i'm standing on the wall and as i kind of start backtracking the path that we came but now on top of the wall my buddy's down on the ground he's now walking along and he kind of drops away because the wall goes back up to 20 feet uh, or the ground drops away to where it's 20 foot tall wall again. And I make it to the corner and I turn right and I go down that wall and I pick up the, the, the Frisbee. I turn it around to get back and there's like four guards with dogs chasing down this wall towards me and the dogs are going nuts. Right. And they'll come up and they're like, each one of them grabs an arm. And I'm standing there standing with the, or no, I'd already, I'd taken the Frisbee. Like when I, when I picked the Frisbee up, my buddy was standing down there, like 20 feet down. And I just take the Frisbee and throw it down to him. Cause he's like right there, but 20 feet below me. And that's when I turned around. These guards come up and they get on me and all this sort of stuff. And they grab a hold of me and they're speaking, yelling in French at me. And this was fresh off, by the way, our, uh, one of the guys on the ship, the previous deployment, there was an allegation that he had killed somebody because there was a uh, some yacht or something that they were on. Uh, a guy died of a heart attack or something like that. There's some allegation that we had killed him. Uh, our guy had killed him. This is before he got to the ship. But anyway, so uh, so the so I don't know what to say. They're yelling at me in in French. I'd actually taken French in high school, which was just a little you know those ten years previous to this, of course. The all I could think to say was mon disque on the wall. And I, I make the hand gesture of a of a frisbee, you know, around frisbee. I said mon disque on the wall. And I said it two or three times and I point down to the my buddy who's standing down there 20 feet below us, and he's got like the frisbee, and he's like holding it up like this. And so uh I don't know if it's just out of pure exasperation or whatever, but they uh they grab my grab my arm and they kind of drag me to this thing. And like, surprise, surprise, it was a prison that I had broken into to get my Frisbee back, to get up on the wall of this, this prison, because as I'm walking back and they're taking me, taking me through the main entrance area, like they don't push me through the spiky gate thing. They walk me, drop off the wall and then 
go in and, and come out the main entrance. And it's clearly a, a prison that I had uh, broken into. So good times. We were, we were walking back and there was a, we were following some young lady who was clearly a lady of ill repute and uh, walking through the gut or something like that. I'm trying to think if I can remember anything else from walking around there. Oh, so there's this overarching kind of running joke about the gut, right? This, this uh, seedy red light uh, part of town. Of course, you know, young, young men being young men doing the things that they do or whatever, we get underway. We leave and we were probably there for five days or something, something like that. And we get underway and it becomes known that one of the divisions, uh, one of the, the, the teams on board a ship, you know, like everybody has their own specialty. One of the particular teams had, uh, had a division officer who they had, I think they had a love hate relationship with them or something like that, but they had, and I'll, I'll try to keep all this clean, of course, cause we want this to be clean, but they had, uh, they had, you know, engaged in commerce with one of the, uh, local, uh, female merchants, if you will, and, uh, purchased this experience for their division officer, which is a huge no, no on in, in the military in general that, you know, there's supposed to be a division between the officers and the crew and all this kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and, uh, but that was not what happened in this case. They had purchased an experience for their division officer and for what now will become obvious, uh, the individual had partaken of this experience, which is all well and good. But the problem is as follows. When you're underway, you have uh, three, basically three section watch rotation and the submarine day becomes is basically an 18 hour day for most of the people on the ship because you stand watch for six hours. Meaning you have a place where you do your professional job and you stand watch for six hours. So if you're a, a machinist mate, you'll be out uh, uh, maintaining mechanical equipment in the engine room. That's your watch station. You take logs on it and all this kind of stuff. If you are a uh, torpedo man, you're up in the torpedo room, standing watch for six hours, maintaining that equipment and taking logs and all that sort of stuff. And you get the idea. Everybody has their job. So for six hours, you stand your particular watch and then you have 12 hours off. We, you would say, I say off, but I don't mean off because what you do during, during that 12 hours is you do maybe some maintenance, like if some equipment broke, you do training. If there's any training planned, you do, you sleep, uh, you eat, you work out. If you can fit all that in, uh, you study because you're qualifying different watch stations and you're qualifying to get your, your dolphins, the, the submarine warfare pin. So all this stuff is going on during the 12 hours off. But after 12 hours, you're back on watch for six hours and you just rotate like that. Every out of 18 hours, you spend six hours on watch. There are some watch stations and some positions where you don't have to do that. But in general, that's what most of the ship is on, right? My watch rotation at the time, I was a junior officer on a nuclear submarine and your primary job when you get to the ship, and I had just gotten to the ship, like I said, was you are learning to be an an engineering officer of the watch which is the lead watch station in the nuclear power plant uh, back after in the submarine where you monitor the operations of the plant and 
do stuff and take logs and, and, and do stuff. There's a bunch of people, there's maybe, there's like maybe eight watch stations or something like that back in the back end of the, of the submarine mining the plant at any one time. So that's where you stand. And my watch station was called engineering Officer the watch. There are three junior officers in that watch rotation. And, uh, I stood watch after the individual who had engaged in said commerce whilst in Toulon, France. Right. And I'm not sure what he got into in this, in this commercial activity, but it wasn't good. The, it was like this coughing, this nasty phlegmy coughing sort of a thing. So every time I would go in to take the watch, cause I would relieve him. I'd come in, he was standing the watch and I would take over right from him. And there's like all kinds of stuff you're touching, right? There's like a microphone where if you have to make announcements in the engine room and all this kind of stuff. So I'd have to relieve him. And he was not doing well after this experience and just, ugh, right? So I would take, there's a, a little bottle called Whiskadine, which is an antiseptic cleaner that you use to wipe out the gas masks. Uh, they're actually air masks, uh, emergency air breathing apparatus or whatever they're called. But you have this uh, disinfectant so you can wipe the, the face plate area. But I would take that Whiskadine and basically wipe down the entire maneuvering area where we stood watch because I did not know exactly what this person had gotten into. But what I did know was I did not want any part of whatever it was. And uh, that went on for probably a week or so. You know, I'm surprised we didn't, uh, you know, euthanize him or something like that because it was pretty rough. That's my story about Toulon. I hope you enjoyed it. After hearing that story, this kind of folds into what uh, my son and I were talking about this last weekend. And if the purpose of the Garrison Project is, to, is veterans connecting with veterans across generations through the power of storytelling. And we're using, as one of the modes of communication here, we're using this podcast. I'm concerned a little bit about what happens when you have a story that gets a little blue. Amongst all the other things I want to hear feedback about is, what do you all think? My, uh, when, when talking about doing an interview uh, with my son, and this is like everybody, I mean, we've all got them. The first story that came to mind was this ridiculous story about something that was, uh, how shall we say, inappropriate. I'm interested to, to know what people think about telling those kind of stories. Because reality is, when you put people in close quarters, they get, again, how shall you say, familiar with one another. And ridiculous stuff happens. It absolutely happened on the the submarines I was on. It clearly happened in the uh, in the units that uh, my son was a part of. But, and I'm not talking about you know some of some of the negative stuff that comes about nowadays in sort of the the social landscape that we're on, where things like that can get out of hand. In fact, uh, all the military was dealing with this. It is in general as a topic hazing, right? What do you do there? I'm not talking about that kind of stuff, although I'm sure we could, as a, as a community here, wheel out lots of stories about, about that. Uh, sometime I'll share my uh, shellback stories 
for all Navy, uh, Navy Bubba's out there, I would love to hear uh, some interesting shellback stories that's going across the equator. So, the, so yeah, what do you do when there's a story that a lot of people will connect with that gets a little, uh, a little, uh, little blue? Anyway, we'll we'll see where that lands. I know it's going to come up when when we do our uh, do the podcast with uh, with my son here. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that because hey, that's reality, right? That's that's the way people are, and that's what connects us. And unfortunately, that's uh, the way things are. The one that comes to mind that I won't that, that isn't too bad is I distinctly remember one of the the Marine Corps guys at Auburn when I was there. He was a uh, I forget what an E seven is in the Marine Corps. Off the top of my head, for some reason, it just slipped my mind. But uh, he was an active duty guy. I think he was a staff sergeant. There you go, staff sergeant C six, and then Gunny is E seven. He was, I think, when he got to Auburn, he was a, a staff sergeant and may have made gunnery sergeant while he was there. Whatever. One of the stories he tells is about he was a he was a tank guy. And hey, you know, just like all of us, you know, sometimes if you you, know, you don't plan well, sometimes you have to use the bathroom when you're in difficult situations and they like uh, i think in the world of, of tankers they've uh, they've got some strategically placed doors and hatches that you can just do what you got to do when you're on the road right so uh whether it's something like that or or other other stuff i'm not sure how we tell those sorts of stories without getting our podcast rated differently and turning some people off i don't want to do that feel free to, to shoot me a note of what you think to continue that that line of thought, the other topic that we were talking about was not just how do you tell stories that get a little uh, risque, but also something to add on here about the the podcast. When I do an interview, we're going to talk about. You've already heard the structure a couple times now. First, it's you know welcome to the podcast. Then it's tell me about what you're doing now, and then it's about tell me about how you got into the military, and then tell me your story. And as the script is kind of like currently built, it's tell me, you know, tell me if you have any wrap up thoughts, what I'm going to try at least once or twice. And uh, I'd be surprised if this doesn't catch on and really is the way we go forward is what are you passionate about now? Because everybody, you know, we're veterans and active duty military people and reservists and all that. We're just a slice of America. We're coming from all over the map and all walks of life. Not only will the stories that we experienced in the military be points of connection, but also stuff now. Maybe you're a, um, you know, let me think of a couple of things from across the spectrum here. Maybe on one hand, you have some people who are passionate about gun collecting or something like that. On the other hand, you have some people who are uh, anti-gun, or maybe you have people who are uh, mountain climber type people or hike bikers or hikers or all that sort of thing. And then maybe you have people who are into to, to cars and trucks and wrenching on vehicles and we'll dig a little bit into what that is. So if somebody says they're into, into motorcycles, Japanese motorcycles, you know, the fast stuff, the, the, the crotch rockets and all that kind of thing. So we'll talk a little about it. So what's your ride? What's uh, what do you do? What's your, what got you into that? Those sorts of things. And we'll dig a little bit into that. I think that's a clear place that, that we need to take this conversation because, again, it's about building connections. And those connections will be even stronger if we understand what our current passions are all about. And I'm uh, bold enough, I think, here, and we should all be, that who knows where that'll end up because people are all over the map today. We should be strong enough as a community to talk about that. 
because the things that bring us together specifically aren't the things that push us apart. It's my belief that we should be able to have civil conversations and meaningful conversations and meaningful connections, even when we don't see eye to eye on stuff, because I think, and I think uh, history will play this out is that there's much, much more that connects us than uh, does not connect us. And I want to, you know, cheerfully jump right into the, uh, into the deep end of the pool with some of that stuff and see where that goes. That's what will make this entertaining. As I mentioned previously, we'll also start including, maybe it's not every, every episode of the podcast, maybe it is, whatever. I want to start including uh, tangible things that will help us support one another. One of the easy topics when uh, Rob Davis and I were, were talking on here, one of the easy topics to, to bring up is uh, veteran employment. And uh, I thought we would uh, have a real quick topic here in that, in that area. I say quick because we've already gone uh, for quite a while, but we might as well go ahead and start throwing some of those sorts of things in here. We'll talk about employment because that's an easy one, but what about the other stuff too? And that's where I want to bring other experts in. So like, what, let's say somebody's going through their first VA home loan. It'd be great to have somebody in our community who's very familiar with that, who could come in and provide some talking points and some discussion points and a strategy to, to do that. So there, there's another example, maybe hobbies and those sorts of things might be a good one to go down the road of, but either way. So I thought we'd uh, do a quick topic here that, uh, that was definitely valuable to me in my transition. Uh, and maybe it'll be helpful for other folks who either are in the process of transitioning out of the military or are between jobs uh, themselves. Uh, let's talk about informational interviews. It feels like I have about a 25% success rate when I ask uh, people I talk to if they've heard of such a thing. And it just must be that it's not part of the the, the stock footage that they show you in transition assistance programs about informational interviews. But some people really totally get it and some people have never heard of it. In a brief version, what an informational interview is, is really a strategy to open up conversations with stakeholders in the kinds of companies that you may want to land in, whether it be as you transition out of the military or just career field to career field. Although the storyline is a little bit stronger when you're doing the military to civilian transition than just, you know, a civilian job to a civilian job, just because the, the hook's there with, you know, hey, I'm a vet and I'm trying to get into this field and all that stuff, but certainly can use it in uh, regular job to job transitions as well. But let's just kind of, use right now the hypothetical of, uh, and I'll use me. I won't use a hypothetical. I'll use an exact example. So there I was, I got to a, a shore command at the 18 year mark. I looked at moving into another field, kind of getting out of the submarine force and into some other stuff. And that just didn't play out well. So it became clear. I'm going to retire at the end of this two year or two and a half year tour. I talked to the wife, gave her the proverbial Atlas and said, here, pick a spot. Because I figured, hey, I'll find something, which is true. Uh, so off you go, right? You come up with a set of goals and you start doing a job search around those goals. The information interview, and I think mine was, there was a group up there. I'll see if I can remember it and maybe pass it on because it was a good resource. But 
somebody in this, the first transition event I went to, uh, we were sitting around these round tables in the, I think it was the community center on Naval Submarine Base Banger, which is now Naval Base Kitsap, Bang, uh, Naval Base Kitsap, and then Banger Submarine Base, whatever. We were sitting in these round tables of maybe eight or 10 people per. Somebody sitting next to me uh, gave me, told me about these information interviews. And the idea is this if you know a company that does what it is that you are trying to target for a job, reach out through your network or through social, you know, a social media thing like LinkedIn or whatever, reach out to some people who are doing that job or would be supervising people who are doing that job and ask for an information interview and be, give some detail around that. What this is, is an interview where you are claiming you have no expectation of getting a job offer out of it, that this is totally no, no strings attached. I just want to work on my interview chops and uh, talk about the career field that I want to get into. And Hey, Mr. St Mr. And Mrs. Stakeholder person, you're in this field. Could you sign up? Would you be willing to sign up for an information interview for me? What that triggers and you, you put the right words around that because you're re you're oftentimes reaching out to people you don't know. I'll give you another strategy here in just a second though, about how to, uh, minimize the impact of not knowing people, but you're reaching out to them. And usually what they hear is pretty close to what you're trying to say is, Hey, I'm going to give a fake interview to somebody so they can practice the language, you know, get into their newly purchased, uh, you know, suit and tie and practice interviews because in the end they want to do this. And those interviews, and I think I did about seven or eight of them when, uh, when I was doing it and there was a great community that I was a part of, uh, there in the North uh, Pacific Northwest, which was kind of headed up by the Seattle rotary who had connections to pretty much everybody. They connected me to all these stakeholders near. So like Microsoft, I did a, an interview with, with an information interview with somebody from Microsoft. I did one with the head of operations for the airport. Uh, these are all port of Seattle. The, these few are port of Seattle people. One of the lead HR people for the actual port facilities in downtown Seattle, uh, did an information review there, did one with escaping me now, but it was like, so it was about seven or eight different people. There was a, uh, there was a, there's a, there's a utility up there that used to be called Seattle steam. And I did an information interview with the CEO of that company based on my connections through Seattle rotary. Right. And I thought that was actually going to be, uh, something that would be perfect because I was in nuclear power and this is, was a, you know, basically a, a utility uh, burning scrap wood up there to make steam to, to heat buildings or something. Anyway, so these uh, information interviews are this way that under the guise of not expecting anything out of it, you can put your resume in front of them. You can, you know, do your best pitch about what you are and why you think you're going to get into that field. And this other person is like fully engaged, right? If they accept this appointment to do an information interview, they're going to be engaged, right? They're just going to do an interview. And then at the end, instead of say the usual spiel about our HR person will get back to you or whatever the case may be, then they're going to have a discussion about you did good in this. You didn't do good in that and all this, which is all good, right? Because you've actually accomplished what was the formal purpose, which was to practice the interview in that field that you are looking to do. 
But what you've also done is you put your resume in front of this person and they now know you. And maybe it's three months later, or maybe it's six months later, or maybe it's one month later. You can go back to that person and say, I appreciate so much you taking the time for that uh, informational interview. I'm actually in the job market now and my transition date is this, my availability date is such and such. Do you have any thoughts on good uh, places to target in the area or whatever meets your goals? Do you have any, any thoughts on what companies I may target or whatever, which is an implicit way of asking, by the way, do you have any openings? Then you get to network off of that person, right? I forget what it was I was going to, oh, uh, how to get to, if you, uh, if you don't know somebody, how do you get to the right kind of a person? That's the whole network thing. I'm not going to dig in too much of that because this, this podcast is going a little bit too long. But we'll talk about uh, networking. Next time we don't have a, a, an interview, uh, somebody else doing an interview or providing some call-in stuff, we can talk about networking in general and how to get to somebody. So that's an informational interview. That, that's how you do it. The idea is it's kind of like a non-confrontational, no-strings-attached interview that actually does all the stuff that a real interview would do without being everything that a real interview is. All right. Hopefully, hopefully we got something out of that discussion about informational interviews. The piece I want to talk about is talk about what the real purpose of, of the Garrison project, uh, not just the Garrison project podcast, but, the garrison project because the garrison itself the garrison project itself is not about is not just any one piece or part it's not the podcast it's not the website it's not the interviews it's not all that it's the community itself and i mentioned this a little bit earlier it's about where this community can take itself and things that we can do to support ourselves and make change that is positive for us and the world can we be that bold watch the uh nfl hall of fame inductions over the uh, over the weekend love it love that kind of stuff because it's about people who it would appear from the outside who are realizing that they are they actually did something that was important people who played football all their lives and all that kind of stuff but then here they are standing in front of everybody saying Oh, I guess this actually was something important. And I was, I did make change and I was important to the world and all that kind of thing. That's what I want the Garrison Project to be. I want it to have the the horsepower to make real change based on where this community wants to go. How are we doing that? The the tagline I keep telling uh, or keep using here, and it's on, you know, branded up all around it is veterans connecting with veterans across generations through the power of storytelling why in the world would we would we have that i just ran out of water this could be a problem where did this come from my partner in crime who i'm sure will make a uh, an appearance on here and i think now it's going to be a mystery that's going to start to build us who is this mystery person but i'm sure he will be on the podcast sometime soon he works in a world that is about storytelling and he and I got together around this topic about six months, seven months ago. And it's a natural fit for what we do. Our community 
the veteran community is possibly the most, the community that is most inclined towards service. It's what we did, uh, what we signed up for. We moved on beyond that. Some of us are still in it. Hopefully I'll have active duty people in here as well. We either are doing it or did it. And now here we are and we're in a different world and we're still wired that way because we were as young adults, we were uh, indoctrinated into that in a good way. So what can we do? The storytelling makes the connections. I can tell stories about submarining that World War II submariners will remember. And there's not too many of those left, but the uh, early nuke submariners, they'll, they'll connect with those stories. I've been retired for eight years. Today's submariners will connect with the stories about being on watch and you know, being on maneuvering watch and coming down the bridge and all, all that kind of good from the bridge and all, all that kind of good stuff. Those, those connections are there for army types, people who've been in conflicts and, and fought side by side with people, you know, digging fortified positions and kicking in doors uh, that goes on the far dramatic side of stuff that uh, gets told a lot. So if people want to tell those stories, I'm hundred percent good, but what is the day-to-day stuff, you know, eating crappy MREs. I had two weeks of army training at Fort Jackson in 108 or 109 degree heat, unbelievable humidity, MREs and stuff like that. I'm guessing there's a few army people who have stories about MREs, which ones are good, which ones aren't good, et cetera. There's godforsaken cookies, the 2000 calorie cookies or whatever they are. So we tell those stories to reinforce the connections that are already there so that veterans from a generation or two ago can feel the connection to somebody like me who's just been retired for eight years. We can have that connection. And now what do we do with that? Where can we go with it? So tying together the storytelling piece with what the ultimate goal is here, the storytelling and uh, you, you'll probably see some of this uh, on the website, maybe now, maybe later. But uh, some of the, the secret sauce is the storytelling and the connections reduce loneliness and increase connectedness. And that is the science behind what the Garrison Project is going to be doing here. By telling these stories, we draw the community closer together and reduce the loneliness, increase connectedness, which gives us the power to do some really special stuff. Now, of course, you got to prove it, right? Uh, Any company who is kind of moving forward together is going to want to have proof of that. And that brings me to this piece, is we're actually going to be running a, a test of this to get some data. And I'm hoping to connect with people who are listening to this and people I reach out to uh, over social media I need help with this test. What we're actually going to be doing is deploying this correspondent model that I mentioned early in one of the podcasts all that long time ago in podcast one, two, or three. We're going to be testing this correspondent model to validate the correspondent approach. What the correspondent approach is, is we have an app that facilitates doing an interview with someone telling their story, right? So we're telling stories on here in the podcast format I told you there's a written version of this, the blog format to tell stories there, but the most organic connection is one veteran sitting in front of another veteran face-to-face 
hearing, you know, one of them telling a story, one of them hearing a story and it being recorded over our app and posted in on our site, telling stories face to face, building that connection directly. So the test, what we are aiming for is, and I'll be reaching out directly to some people over social media. Uh, I'm reaching out now over this podcast is I need 10 volunteers, 10 volunteers to be correspondents who will actually go out and in, uh, interview uh, other veterans. So veteran correspondents interviewing other veterans, capturing their story over our app, uh, you know, just a regular phone-based app. Uh, that app already exists. We are finalizing kind of the documents behind what the test is. And the goal here is to measure the impact of capturing these stories in a correspondent model, capturing the impact in loneliness and connectedness for the veterans who do it. So both for the correspondent and for uh, the veteran who is being the veteran correspondent and the veteran who is doing the interview and telling their story. Uh, and there's some real simple kind of classic uh, tests to, to measure what impact is there. Uh, so, looking for initially 10 volunteers to be correspondents. I'll connect and I have the, you know, some procedures written up to do this and you'll download the app. We'll connect with some places where we can do some uh, interviews. Most likely I, I'm thinking of some veteran homes and those sorts of things that just makes it kind of a more condensed test that we know where we're going to. And it's an easier place to reach out to. But 10 correspondents, we'll do 10 interviews, and then we'll do a before and after uh, survey that measures connectedness and loneliness and look at the impact that this sort of organic connection has on the people involved. And if, if I didn't say it before, impact both on the correspondent and the veteran being interviewed. So call to action, my friends. I need 10 volunteers. Who are willing who will be willing to with my help and me helping set up the event to go out and do an interview i think i'll need more in the end but i want to just start modestly as the company is starting in a modest fashion 10 correspondents will do 10 interviews and i have the test to do before and after both for for the correspondent and for the veteran 10 volunteers for correspondence if you want to be a volunteer for the interview. Hey, you know, actually be interviewed by a correspondent. I'll take that as well. All of that send directly to me, Dan at the garrison project.com. Just send me an email and say, interested in being a correspondent, interested in being an interview subject. And, and let's go from there. Final, final plug here, by the way, speaking of interviews, not just for our test of the science behind connectedness and loneliness and how those can be impacted by storytelling. I need interviews for the podcast. So if you've got a story to tell and you want to tell on the podcast, please, oh, please reach out to me and let's get that set up. It feels like I didn't dig in enough about what the concept is here. Cause we talked a heck of a long time about the stories and stuff earlier, but I'll continue to reinforce it. You've heard what I've uh, been talking about here as far as action items. We've now set the world record for a The Garrison Project podcast length. 
And uh, I hope you find it useful. Really looking forward to staying engaged. And I will talk to you soon. You have been listening to the Garrison Project Podcast with Dan Edinger. Veterans connecting with veterans across generations through the power of storytelling. Look for us on the web and social media and please share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks for the support. Like us whenever you listen to our podcast and stay tuned for more episodes.